On this episode, Friendship and Compassion. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the titles, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. This is episode 18, and today we'll be going over lesson 9 of the Abraham study. Last episode, we went over the first half of Genesis 18, where three angels had come to Abraham and told him again that he and Sarah would have a son together. This was the first that Sarah had heard of it, and she's obviously shocked because she and Abraham will be 90 and 100 by the time that this son is born. And we talked about how nothing is impossible with God and reminded ourselves if he can make a woman that is 90 years old have a child, then he can do the impossible things in our life. So if you happen to miss that episode, you might want to go back and listen. This week, we're going to finish chapter 18, which is a passage that leads up to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a very famously known passage of the Bible. So let's go ahead and get started in Genesis 18:16, And we're just going to read a couple of verses at first because as I'm reading, see what it is that you notice about God in just these first few verses. Genesis 18:16. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So we're going to stop right there. This passage shows us that God is a thinking, reasoning being. He knows that Abraham has a vested interest in this land because of his nephew Lot, but he also doesn't want to upset him by something that he can't do anything about and that won't directly affect his blessing or any of the promises that God has given to him. This shows how much God cares about Abraham And just how much of a friend he really was to God because God is reasoning out how this news will affect Abraham specifically. Listen to this verse in James 2.23. It says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now listen to this part. And he was called the friend of God. Now, listen to one more verse. This is in Isaiah 41, 8. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. 
the descendants of Abraham, my friend. God calls Abraham his friend. And it's very obvious here that God thinks of him as a friend because he's relating to him as a friend would, thinking about how he will feel about what's about to happen and how to relay this information to him. Now, Jesus also does this in John 15, 14 through 16. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. So right here, we see that Jesus is calling the disciples his friends, which lets us know that God really does want a relationship with us. He wants conversation and feelings and intimacy. And so we should strive to have that type of relationship with him. The entire conversation that he and Abraham are about to have just shows how close they are to each other. So continue to pay attention to that. I do want to go over the next couple of verses and remove ourselves from that relationship and just talk about God and his ability for just one moment. And then we'll go back to their conversation. So let's go ahead and continue reading in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 18. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So, if you just read this passage, it sounds as if God can hear the cries against this city But he doesn't see everything that's going on because he says he must go down and see if everything is as bad as he's heard it to be. This seems contrary to what most of us have probably ever been taught about God, that he sees and knows and hears all. And so when I first read this, I thought, why does he have to go see it? Doesn't he already see all things? So then I started looking at verses again to make sure that God can see all things. We've already studied in Genesis 16, 13, how Hagar called God the God that sees. She names him that. He is the God that sees because he saw her and she was fully aware of that. So we know that God saw Hagar. But does God see each and every one of us, everything that's going on, as I had always grown up believing? So let's look in Psalm 33, 13 through 15. It says, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. It says he looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place in heaven. So that sounds pretty self-explanatory. Now let's look at Hebrews 4.13. That was an Old Testament verse. Now we're going to look in the New Testament and see that the New Testament also confirms this. It says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nothing is hidden from his sight, it says. 
Every single thing is naked and open to him. He sees all. So both of those scriptures seem very clear that God can see all things and that he was seeing all things that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah from heaven. So this passage must mean something different if we know that God is able to see this. So listen to this part. It says in verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they've done all together according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So this goes back to what we've talked about before about this word know. What it means to know something not by seeing it alone or by thinking it logically, but actually experiencing it. And that's what God is talking about. I am going to actually experience this town for myself. I see all the things going on, but once I experience it, then I will know just exactly how bad it is. Now, again, does God not already know? He does know logically, but to experience something is an entirely different situation. And God's fully aware of what he's going to experience. He knows what it's going to be like. But this shows that God isn't willing to do anything drastic without experiencing it for himself. This matter involved many, many people. And it says their sin is so great that this needed special attention. This is so serious that it deserves more attention than just looking down from heaven and declaring something. So let's read this interaction now between God and Abraham. Verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? So this shows that Abraham knows God's character. He knows that God is a just God. He is fair and he is patient and he can only do what's right. And so Abraham is appealing to that nature in the Lord and saying, surely if there are good people there, you won't kill them too, right? Suppose there's 50 good people there. You wouldn't destroy the city for 50 good people, right? Because that wouldn't be fair. Those 50 people didn't do anything wrong. You wouldn't do that, would you, God? And here's what the Lord says, verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? Okay, so first of all, Abraham says, You know, I'm really no one to be talking to you like this because I'm aware that I'm just basically dust and ashes and you are the living God. But since you allowed me to ask you and you've answered me, what if there's only five less than that? Now, do you see what Abraham has done here? As opposed to saying, what if there's 45? He says, 
What if there's only five less than 50? Which kind of changes the thought process just a little bit because our mind is focused on five bad people as opposed to 45 good. And it's like, if you're going to save the town for 50 people, then surely if there's only five less than that, you wouldn't do it just because there's five worse people, right? Surely you wouldn't do that. And so God says to him, If I find there 45, I won't destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be 40 found there. And so God said, I won't do it for the sake of 40. And then Abraham said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I won't do it if I find 30 there. And then he said, Indeed now, I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I won't destroy it for the sake of 20. And then Abraham said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And God said, I won't destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So think about this conversation. This really is a special relationship that Abraham shares with the Lord because obviously God knows the heart of Abraham, and Abraham knows the loving and merciful character of God. It seems quite bold to me that Abraham is continuing to say, what if this many, what if this many, what if this many? But Abraham is not pleading for himself. We have to remember that. He's pleading on behalf of other righteous people that do not have a voice right now with the Lord. And so it's his compassion and his desire for justice for these righteous people that makes him bold enough to negotiate with God in this way. To have this conversation and continue to ask for more and more lenience. And because God knows that he is not doing this on his own behalf, but for other people. And because unfortunately God also knows that it doesn't matter whether there's 50 or 10. He's not going to find either one. So he allows Abraham to do this because this is what is going to make Abraham feel better. If Abraham knows that there weren't even 10 good people, then he's going to be able to accept this destruction of this city much, much easier. And remember, at the first of this, God is very deeply concerned about Abraham's feelings. And so he's demonstrating that concern here by allowing him to continue to ask over and over again. Now, this does show that Abraham is very aware of God's character and just how compassionate and fair and loving and merciful and enduring God really is. Listen to these couple of verses that explain God's character. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So this says that God is righteous, but he's also just. He's also fair. And it also says that he is merciful and truthful. Now, let's also look at 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but his suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that tells us that God is not only fair, but he is so very patient because he does not want anyone to die in their sin. 
He wants everyone to come to repentance. But he also knows all, and he is aware of who will turn to him in repentance and who is not going to. And if someone is truly evil and they are never going to come to repentance, then sometimes it's best just to stop them. I want you also to notice the humility and the honor that Abraham shows to God. He pauses several times to admit to God how inferior he is to him and ask him, please, not to be angry with him. Abraham is aware of God's power and he's fearful to anger him, but he also cares so much about justice and righteousness for the righteous people that he's willing to go boldly to God on their behalf. He's standing up for these righteous people because they're unable to stand up for themselves. And here's the thing. God tells us to do the same thing. There are several places throughout the Bible that tells us to have compassion upon the least of these. The widows, the orphans, the poor and the needy, the helpless, the sick, those that are strangers, those that are in prison. These are the people that don't have their own voice, that need us to have compassion on them and speak up on their behalf. Here's just a couple of verses that talk about that. Matthew 25, 35, and 36 says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So the hungry, the stranger, those that didn't have clothes, so they're poor, the sick, those in prison, those are the people that were being cared for. Isaiah 1, 17 says, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Seek what is fair. Rebuke people that oppress others. Defend the orphans. Beg for help for the widow. These are things that we should be doing. Last verse, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. That's what Abraham's doing right here. He is opening his mouth for the speechless in the cause of people that are about to die. God calls us to do the same thing. There are those that cannot speak up for themselves. I would say specifically in this verse, unborn babies that are appointed to die cannot speak for themselves, and that is something that we as Christians should do. But of course, there's always more. In verse 9, the poor and the needy. We are supposed to speak up for these people because they are unable to help themselves. If Abraham was bold enough to go to God the one that has power over all the earth and all the things that go on in his life, if he was willing to go to him on behalf of others boldly, then how much more should we be able to do that on this earth for those that need it? How much more should we go to God on their behalf? And how much more should we not fear men If he is not even afraid to go to God, then why are we too afraid to speak up on this earth with men 
that can do very little to us when we look at the big picture of what God is able to do. Listen to this verse, Matthew 10, 28. It says, Do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We should be much more afraid of the Lord than we are of people. Spiritually, eternally, they can do nothing to us, but God can. And so if he was bold enough to go to the God that has authority over him even after death, then how much bolder should we be to at the least go to people on behalf of others, if not also the Lord? So think today, in what way can I plead the case for someone else? Who needs to see my compassion on their behalf? In what way can I publicly stand up for others? Who do I need to plead with the Lord for? Now, the last thing that I want to talk about is the compassion of God here. Look how reluctant he is. He is not willing to destroy this place, first of all, without completely experiencing its evil for himself, giving special attention before he imposes consequences on large amounts of people. But also, he says that he is willing to spare the entire towns of Sodom and Gomorrah if he can only find 10 good people there. Think for a moment what number of people in this town would there have to be before you would feel like God is unjust by killing an entire town if he can only find nine good people in it. I mean, even if this town had only a thousand people, if there was only nine out of a thousand that were good, that's still a pretty bad town, right? Still a pretty bad place. You still have 991 bad people. That's a lot of bad people. And God says if there are 990, then he will spare all thousand just for those 10 that are righteous. That's compassionate, right? That is compassion. So even if it was a small town, just one small town of a thousand people, that would be compassionate. But in all the studies that I've done, the estimated number of people living in this area was anywhere from 40,000 to 65,000. That is a lot of people. Even with the conservative number of 40,000 people in a town, He says that he'll spare all 40,000 if he can find only 10 righteous. That means there are 39,990 evil people. And God's willing to spare all of them because he finds 10 righteous. That is 0.025% of the people. One-fourth of 1% that are good. And God's willing to spare the entire place. Now, I'm just saying this because next episode, we're going to be talking about how God does end up destroying this place because he is unable to find even 10 good people in this town. And so often the destruction of these cities is pointed out as a demonstration of God's wrath and anger. And I I just want to know how. If anyone is looking at this chapter 19, what we're about to read, and they say, look at how unfair, how angry, how wrathful God is in doing this, 
I just need to know if they've read this interaction that he has with Abraham beforehand. Because even if you didn't know that this was only a fourth of 1% or less of the people that they find good, even if you didn't know that, even if you believed that this was a town of 500 people, that would still be only 2%. And we know this is two towns, and I believe smaller surrounding towns. So we know, even without any kind of research, we know that this is more than 500 people. More than 98% of the people are evil. And God is still willing to spare them all just for the sake of 10 people. No matter how big that town is, 10 people is nothing. I I just do not see the wrath. I just do not. This is mercy in its abundance as far as I can see, that God is not just sitting in heaven, striking this place to the ground, is evidence that he's taking it seriously and that he cares and that he is a merciful and patient God. But then when we see this interaction and we see that he is willing to spare it all for the sake of 10 good people, one fourth of 1%, 99.975% of the people are bad. And he's still willing to spare it for that 0.025% or less. That is mercy. That is not wrath. That is patience. That is compassion. That is righteousness. That is mercy. But yes, it is justice. It is also justice because God is just. Let me just ask you this. If there was a place that you knew of that held 50,000 people in it and you couldn't find even 10 good people, would you not want that city gone? Would you want a city right next to you that had 49,991 bad people in it and only nine good ones? I I mean, would you want that? Apparently, there were many that didn't want that because it says that there was an outcry against this city. Why would there be an outcry against this city if it was not harming someone? If there were not victims of the evil that was going on there? There are people that are being hurt by the evil in that city. Don't you think they want justice? And even when they're crying out to him saying, God, this is bad. This is really, really bad. He still is like, I just hate to wipe out an entire town. If I can find even 10 good people, I just can't do it. Even with the outcry that's against it. That's patience. That's mercy. That is compassion. So please, if you ever hear someone talking about God's wrath and stating Genesis 19 as an example of that, Point them to the last half of Genesis 18. Show them how hesitant God was to destroy this entire area. God is not willing that anyone should perish in their sins. That is why He is patient. He wants us all to come to repentance. But some never will. And if they will not, and all they are doing is harming others while they're here doing their evil, then a just God puts a stop to that. A loving, caring God puts a stop to that for all of the righteous people so that we don't have to live amongst that, so that we don't have to become victims of that. If you listen to the introductory episode, you will know that I love the Old Testament 
And it breaks my heart that people see God as so wrathful that they don't even want to read these parts because they have this misperception of Him. That's one reason that I want to do these studies because that is a false misperception. And I just want so badly for everyone to see His love and grace and mercy and compassion on us. In this Old Testament, knowing His character so that no one is deterred from reading His Word, no one is deterred from having a relationship with Him, no one is separated from Him because of a false idea of His character. That's what Satan wants. It's a lie straight from him. This idea that God is so wrathful that He doesn't deserve to be worshipped or that this Old Testament God is so wrathful that we don't want to read those parts. We don't want to hear about that kind of God. We want to hear about the loving Jesus in the New Testament. That is a lie from Satan so that we do not read His Word in its entirety, so that we do not hear His voice, so that we do not go to Him, so that we do not worship Him, so that we do not love Him, so that we think He is bad instead of good, and it keeps us from Him. That is His desire. That is not God's character. Does God rid the world of evil? Yes. But that is just and that is kind because the rest of us become victims of that. And even at that, he is very hesitant because he desires that all come to saving faith, repentance, and a right relationship with him. So that's all we're going to do today. Next episode, we're going to actually talk about the destruction. But I just wanted you to see before we got into that how hesitant God is before we look at that passage. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss the next episode because it's a continuance of this one. Please leave thoughts and comments wherever you're listening. Also, feel free to email me. My email address is Courtney at LiveThroughJesus.com. I'd love to hear from you and see what you think about this episode in particular. Also, if you enjoy this, make sure that you leave a five-star review. Thank God for His compassion and His grace and His mercy and His love and all of the goodness that He is. And seek someone that you can be a voice for today. Thanks and have a good day.